Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. We all have fears. Encountering things or finding ourselves in potential situations that make us, at best, nervous, or worse, extremely anxious. There are our fears, but then there is also our worst fear. The envisioning of our nightmare scenario, right? When anything and everything goes all wrong. When the thing we most dread, that terrible potential outcome, the very thought of which can sometimes keep us lying awake at night, becomes a hard and cold reality. How are we to respond when that happens? What can we do when our whole world, the life we've created, completely falls apart? Today, as we continue our series on 1 Samuel, Israel's worst fear is about to be realized. What happens here as Israel experiences arguably the greatest defeat yet in her storied history, what happens here may at first seem surprising, perhaps even shocking, because after all, when we last left this story, God had called and raised up in a young boy named Samuel, his first official prophet or spokesperson in centuries since Moses. And the Lord's inaugural message through Samuel was a promise to do something that would catch the attention of everyone in Israel. But as we'll soon see, God is going to make good on that promise, but definitely not in the way anyone expected. Today, as we begin a sequence of four stories that tellingly don't even mention Samuel, but instead focus on the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to learn what can happen when God's people take God lightly. We will come to understand how just going through the routine of worship without taking God seriously, daring to broadcast our beliefs without being willing to actually yield to the Lord's direction, results in our greatest fears being realized. At the same time, we'll also discover how the grace of God is revealed, even when we bring about our worst nightmare. So with both our minds and our hearts open, let's hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 4. And once again, after the reading of the scripture is completed, please keep your Bibles open as we'll be looking beyond what is read aloud today. Today's Bible reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, The Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? 
When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story of 1 Samuel shifts from the tabernacle of the Lord in Shiloh to the battlefield as Israel's rival, the Philistines, begin to stir up trouble. Now, if we go back to the historical book before 1 Samuel, the book of Judges, we discover that the Philistines have been Israel's primary enemy to the West since the days of the long-haired Nazarite named Samson. The Philistines were a warrior people. They were advanced in military strategy and weaponry. They were known for their ferocity in battle. Originally from Greece, primarily by way of Crete, the Philistines first surface in the Bible when they caused Moses, as he led the Israelites out of Egypt, to take a detour, to turn south into the Sinai wilderness in order to avoid encountering them. Later on, roughly 100 years before today's story, the Philistines settled on the flatter coastal belt of Canaan, what we would know today as the Gaza Strip, whereas the tribes of Israel had taken possession of the hill country of Canaan. Once again, after many, many other skirmishes before, the tension between these two neighbors comes to a head as the Philistines declare war against Israel by making camp in a place called Aphek. The town of Aphek, which was a little town north of Joppa, or what is today Tel Aviv, stood on the border between Philistine and Israelite territory. Some 20 miles to the west of Shiloh, Aphek was still in close proximity to where the tabernacle of the Lord resided. So clearly the Philistines initiate this attack as a first strike in a longer progression towards the religious and political center of Israel. In other words, the aim of this declared war by the Philistines is to shatter and destroy Israel's national identity. And as the conflict begins in Israel's first encounter with the Philistines, somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 Israelite men are lost on the battlefield. And Israel's defeat leaves the people perplexed. As their mortal enemy continues to advance upon them, the elders of Israel collectively wonder aloud, why? Why did the Lord bring this defeat on us today before the Philistines? But even before that question has time to be reflected upon, Israel's leaders come up with their own novel answer. They decide on the solution to their problem. They devise a counter strategy that they just know will ensure success as the battle against the Philistines continues. Their answer to their loss is let's bring God to the fight. The Israelites send to Shiloh for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a large rectangular box created by Moses at the Lord's direction. This 
box was covered with gold and the ark contained relics in order to remind Israel of God's faithfulness in their journey through the wilderness. Items such as a pot of manna, Aaron's budded staff, and most importantly, the tablets containing the Ten Commandments that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. The lid, or the top of the ark, featured carved cherubim with outspread wings. This was known as the mercy seat. This is where Israel's high priest atoned once a year for the sins of the people. Now, at that time, the Ark of the Covenant reflected the very presence of God among his people. Therefore, the Ark normally sat in the Holy of Holies, the central, most sacred place in the tabernacle, a location, again, that only the high priest could access once a year on the Day of Atonement. However, there had been certain occasions when the Ark of the Covenant was carried by the Levitical priesthood before the people, particularly whenever they faced an enemy in battle. Now, if we've ever seen the original Indiana Jones movie that features a search for this very same Ark of the Covenant, you might remember a scene where one of the characters remarks, an army that carries the Ark before it is invincible. And this captures the mindset of the Israelites as they grab the Ark of the Covenant and have the priesthood carry it ahead of their troops into their next battle with the Philistines. No doubt the people of Israel were recalling the famous battle of Jericho in the book of Joshua, where the Ark played a very visible and important part of that victory against that city. Seemingly looking to duplicate the circumstances that provided that outcome, as the Ark arrives in their camp from Shiloh, the Israelites shout loudly, loud enough we're told to shake the ground, loud enough for the Philistines to hear. And the Philistines, as they see the Ark of the Covenant arrive into Israel's camp, as they hear the loud cries of the people, in a sense, they confess their faith in the Lord. As they draw the analogy between the battle they're about to fight against Israel and the humiliating defeat of the Egyptians way back in the Exodus story. But the Philistines' momentary belief in the Lord God quickly gives way, as rather than yield and submit before what they perceive as the very presence of God, the Philistines instead double down and commit to be strong and fight on. But as the next battle unfolds, Israel soon discovers this is no Jericho moment. Their plan does not go as they expected. While they lost thousands in the earlier battle, the Israelites experience now an even more staggering defeat as they see tens of thousands fall in this battle. Instead of the divine deliverance of the Exodus, the people seemingly witnessed their God being taken into captivity by the Philistines as the Ark of the Covenant is lost. And as the army of Israel is in retreat, a messenger from the tribe of Benjamin runs ahead 20 miles back to Shiloh to spread the word of Israel's massive and absolute defeat. And this messenger, as the bearer of bad news, wears the customary signs of mourning so you can imagine his appearance even from a distance as he is fast approaching, already communicates, indicates the word he is bringing is not good. And as the people of Israel cry out, crying out not this time with a shout of anticipated victory, but with a cry of deep mourning, Eli, the high priest, the judge, the leader over all Israel, who is now so old that he cannot see anything, Eli pulls this messenger aside and asks, what has happened? And what Eli hears next will cause him to drop dead on the spot. Eli is first told that his two sons, the priests, Hopni and Phinehas, 
who, ac who accompanied the soldiers into battle, who were carrying the ark before them, have died in the conflict. This, you might remember, was the sign the Lord had given to Eli long ago, that Eli's house and the corruption of the priesthood by them, the, uh, their abuse of their spiritual leadership, would not go unreckoned, but would be judged severely. And the sign was that both of his sons would die on the same day. But this is not the news that breaks Eli. No, the writer of this story carefully records it was the news that the Philistines had captured the ark, not that his two sons had died that shocked Eli and caused him to drop dead. Likewise, we're told the news of the loss of the ark is also what most distressed Phineas's pregnant wife, more than the news of the death of her husband, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law. It's the fall of Israel that causes her to jolt into labor. She dies in childbirth, and as she does so, she memorializes the tragedy that's just befallen her people through the name that she gives to her newborn son, Ichabod. Ichabod, a name which typically means the glory has departed, but which can also mean where is the glory. Either way, the point remains the same. For Eli, for Phineas's wife, for the people of Israel, their worst fear has been realized. Their army has been routed. The priestly line of Eli has been extinguished. And the ark of the Lord has been taken captive. Their greatest nightmare has seemingly come true, as in such a defeat, in the fall of the priesthood and the absence of the ark of the covenant, it appears the Lord God has been conquered. It appears that Yahweh has abandoned his people, that Israel has not only lost God's blessing, but also his presence. Now, while 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells us what happened, nothing here makes explicit the reason for why this happened. However, if we consider the story of Israel at this point in time as recorded in the book of Judges and as we've been reading in the first three chapters previously in 1 Samuel, and if we also notice something pretty glaring in this chapter, we can put the pieces together, why this happened, and hopefully benefit from the insight. So what do we know prior about the state of the community of Israel, prior to these battles with the Philistines? We know that the people remained separated into their own tribes, only coming together when facing a common enemy. We know that in the time of the judges, the Lord would raise up great military leaders, judges, to deliver the people and then lead them in temporary reform, only to then watch the people fall deeper into a spiral of ignoring and forgetting God. And we know by the time we get to 1 Samuel, this community is increasingly divided and privatized, with each person looking solely to their own interests. Things, in fact, are so bad that corruption and abuse have overtaken both the spiritual and the political leadership, the priesthood of Israel. Everyone knows it. We learned this chapter two chapters ago. Everyone knows it. And while they complain about it, the overall impression, even into chapter four, is the people aren't doing anything about it. All of this, this collective malaise, this communal practice of going through the motions but not really committing to the Lord is evidenced by what transpires in the conflicts against the Philistines. After their first defeat, the people of Israel start by asking the right question. It's the right question. Why did this happen? But then, did you notice the people never wait? They never bother to ask for the answer. Even though Israel has a newly inaugurated and recognized prophet of the Lord among them, their first divinely designated spokesperson since Moses, the Israelites never talk with the one person 
the only person who could answer their question of why, Samuel. Notice that Samuel basically exits stage right for this and the next two chapters. And there's no declaration here that it's Samuel who disappeared or somewhere went into hiding. No, Samuel apparently is still around. But in what unfolds next, no one in Israel ever bothers to consult with him at all. And not consulting with Samuel the prophet really means the people weren't interested or didn't think to ask the Lord. The very God of whom they are speaking when they ask aloud, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? They don't ask Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord of all creation, whom they know. Instead, the people quickly grab hold of what they think is an easy and obvious solution to their troubles. In the plan the people come up with, did you notice? They look to Hopni and Phineas, two corrupt and abusive priests, to lead the charge. And anyone who knew, and thanks to Samuel's first prophecy from the Lord that we looked at last week, everyone had heard of God's coming judgment declared against Eli, his sons, and his house. Everyone knew the Israelites should have been concerned by the ones who are commanding this battle. But they don't ask or talk to God for wisdom or direction. No. Instead, in reaching for the ark, they purport to lay claim upon the Lord, to use God as some kind of defensive weapon, as if the Lord were some sort of magical charm. Rather than seeking the Lord to provide an answer to their question, the Israelites seek a symbol of the Lord, which was the ark of the covenant. They seek the ark of the covenant, the symbol, to be the answer to their question. In other words, the people attempted to make the Lord God into their idol. The Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant as equivalent to the Lord. I mean, the people could see the Ark, and the presence of the Ark was their hope. The presence of the Ark was their hope. Their belief was in the power of the Ark rather than in the person of God. In this way, the Israelites revealed their faith was no different than the faith of their enemy, the Philistines. You see, the religion of the Philistines was one that equated symbols and idols with gods. Notice this is exactly how the Philistines respond to the ark when it comes into the camp of Israel. They respond as if the ark is the very presence of Israel's God. And as we'll see next week, in the aftermath of their win here, the Philistines will perceive their victory over Israel in the capture of the ark as in fact a defeat of Yahweh, of Israel's God. But they will painfully learn the lesson in making this assumption. For the Israelites, they believed bringing the ark to the battlefield was the same thing as seeking and yielding before the Lord in leading the battle. But it's not. And the results, the tragic defeat that follows, unfortunately, even in that, the people still don't learn how wrong they were. Because whereas before the battle, the people of Israel were convinced through the presence of the ark that the Lord was with them, notice what happens. In the aftermath of losing the ark to the Philistines, the Israelites lament that the Lord has abandoned them. But in the view of God's promises and revealed plans for Israel, all those promises and plans first spoken long ago to Abraham and repeated and reaffirmed through Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the people should have known better that the Lord never abandons his people or breaks his promises. The people had forgotten that despite Yahweh's accommodation through structures like the tabernacle and the ark, 
The presence and the power of the Lord God is not like any other God. It's not limited by space and time. It's not bound by objects or geography. The fact that God is in complete control here is evident by the fact that the Lord declared that this would happen. Remember, the Lord through Samuel had declared the reckoning that would come to Eli and his house. Specifically, God announced he was going to do something so unexpected in the history of Israel that it would catch the attention of everyone, that he, the Lord, would expose the futility of Israel's leaders and liturgy. Therefore, the defeat of Israel's corrupt, abusive, and therefore barren leadership here is less a victory for the Philistines and more of a demonstration that God has declared that what he declared has indeed come to pass. But Israel missed recognizing all of this because Israel was too busy trying to make the Lord into an idol. Both the leaders and the people together attempted to domesticate God rather than to yield before the Lord's will and direction in their lives. They tragically confused bearing the name of God's people and possessing the symbols of God's presence as being in command of God's power. You know, we often speak today of others not putting us in a box, not defining and limiting us according to their own perceptions or purposes. Here in this story, we witness the people imagining that God was literally in the box they were carrying, that they had the Lord at their beck and call rather than abiding and trusting in the Lord's lead. And this won't be the last time that this is a problem for Israel. It's a costly mistake that will surface time and again in Israel's history. Prophets of the Lord long after Samuel will regularly protest against the people's presumption of co-opting the Lord for their devices, for their ends. Israel will rise and fall, split in half, and end up in exile because of her repeated practice of treating the Lord like an idol, some charm or talisman that can be manipulated and controlled. Time and again, the people will mistake external ritualism, going through the motions with God, as being the same thing as a living, abiding faith in the Lord, a faith that obediently yields to one's mind and heart being reshaped, to having one's life transformed by the Lord's grace. And my friends, if we look carefully and honestly at the Israelites in this story, we may see something of a reflection of ourselves. Don't we sometimes border on attempting to make the Lord into our idol? I mean, many Christians become very attached and fixated, and not merely for sentimental reasons, to the specific cross they wear or the translation of the Bible they read. And of course, there's nothing wrong with these and other physical religious objects, just as there was nothing wrong with the ark. These are tangible symbols and tools for the exercise of our faith. However, when we begin to place our focus and our trust in these items as if God is with us, that the Lord will bless us because we possess them or elevate them, we are turning God into our idol. Just like the ark, the true value of these religious items, a cross, a Bible, rests only in their use to move our hearts and minds into a closer relationship, a deeper dependence upon the Lord, on his terms, not ours. And this clarification about idolatry relates not just to religious objects, but also to our spiritual practices. Sometimes, even well-meaning and sincere Christians put their faith and trust in the practices of attending Sunday worship, of reading their Bible, and praying. And again, there is nothing inherently wrong with any of these actions. These are prescribed actions that we should take, but again, as tools 
as practices, gateways to cultivating our understanding, our growth and maturity in following Jesus through compassionately and graciously serving others. But if we place our faith and our trust in the tools, in the practices, they will become idolatrous for us. We will presume that the Lord is only present if we sing the right songs, if we say the proper prayers, if we read the correct translation of the Bible, if we attend the best worship service. All of these things, by the way, coincidentally, not coincidentally, end up being the ones we like and prefer. And instead of worshiping the Lord and serving others, we'll end up worshiping and serving ourselves, our own likes and our preferences. We'll end up worshiping what fits our schedule and our comfort level. Beloved, Sunday worship, reading our Bibles, singing and praying and fasting, all of the various spiritual practices of the church are not some kind of magic formula for us by which we lay claim to the Lord and have God fit into our box, our agenda. No, this wide tapestry of tools are our privileged means by which the Lord lays his claim upon us by which God fashions us to understand and follow his agenda for our lives and for all creation. We all have our idols. The hardest sometimes to recognize are the ones draped in religious tradition and spiritual purpose, but trust me, they're there. We can be especially numb to those kinds of idols. We can justify them. We can rationalize them. I mean, I've lost count in this last year of how many Christians have told me, no, no holes barred, they can't worship the Lord, they can't experience the presence of God unless we are back in our sanctuary. Really? It boggles my mind and breaks my heart how we continue as the body of Christ to argue and divide over the tools and the practices of our faith, our preferences. My friends, through the work of the Spirit and the witness of the Word of God here, we need to be transparent. We need to lay ourselves before the Lord and ask the hard questions, but also take the time, make the space to listen as our God answers, as our Lord reveals the true source of our faith, our hope, and our trust. Is it in him? Let's not be surprised, but instead let's cast aside anything and everything that is getting in the way of our abiding and relying on Christ alone. Because right now, a lot of people in this world, particularly in this nation, are invoking the name of God in order to claim that their way is right. But what we profoundly learn here is we need to be very careful of deceiving ourselves into believing that just because we call ourselves God's people means that whatever we want for ourselves is what God desires for us. Rather than an availability and surrender to be used by God, the Israelites were trying to use God for themselves. Rather than calling out to God and waiting to hear from the Lord, the Israelites were attempting to force the Lord into action on their behalf, to work for them on their timeline and in their way. Beloved, the presumption of Christ's presence in our midst is not our warrant to project or assert Christ's power. It is rather our invitation to humbly receive and follow Jesus' guidance and direction in our lives. The Lord doesn't do our bidding. We do His. And if we want to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then we need to abide and live according to the rules of His kingdom and not the kingdoms we are trying to build. We need to honestly ask ourselves why we do not seek the Lord on matters when we would rather do what we want to do. Because like Israel in this story, we do that because we believe our way is best. 
Samuel's voice is missing because the Israelites thought they could handle the situation. The presence of God was an afterthought. They didn't want to hear anything contrary to what they had already decided to do. And that sounds a lot like us sometimes, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but sometimes, sometimes I can find myself planning or problem solving apart from Jesus. I can get so caught up in my view of a situation, trying to look at all the various angles and then just figuring out what I perceive is the best course of action to take that I can totally forget to look, to ask, to seek Christ's perspective and direction on what is right in front of me. And if I'm honest, sometimes I don't want to know because I am so committed, because I am so sure that what I've decided is right, that what I've determined to do, Jesus just has to bless. My friends, when we think we can handle a situation on our own apart from the Lord, we will find ourselves worse off than when we started. Every time, something always goes horribly wrong because even our best answers are never better than God's. Never. The truth is, any answers that we've had as human beings, that we've come up with in our history apart from the Lord, apart from his revealed wisdom and declared truth, any answers we've done apart from God have and always will end badly, tragically. Humanity has a losing track record whenever and however it attempts to play God. It's not about believing and trusting in what we might be able to do. It's about seeking and following what Jesus has done, what Christ is doing. And with this in mind, I want to reconsider exactly what God is doing here. As I mentioned earlier, this isn't so much a victory for the Philistines as it is exactly what the Lord purposed to do. But why? Why? Why did God allow himself to be captured and seemingly defeated? Why does the Lord go into exile bearing this humiliating blow that's been struck against Israel, the ones who disobeyed and forgotten him? Why? Why does God take on the curse of the covenant failure of his people? The answer to these questions that cannot be found here are presented to us at the cross. Because we worship the God who bears our humiliation and shame. We worship the God who pays the price for the curse of our failures. We worship the Lord who embraces defeat and death that we deserve, not as some indication that he's abandoned or forsaken us, but in order to clear the ledger, our ledger, to clean the slate, our slate, to reset the table in order to set us free from our past and enable us to have a future. The gospel that is later declared in Jesus Christ, my friends, will be revealed here in 1 Samuel. As out of Israel's defeat, devastation, even death, the end of an old, barren, and corrupted era of Israel, the Lord will bring resurrection and new life. This is the good news of God, that even in the midst of our loss, that even in the midst of the struggles of our own making, as the idols in God's image we create fail us, as we turn and ask the Lord where he's been, the gospel is we discover he's never left that it's only when everything else has been stripped away that we finally come to understand what God seeks from us is not checking off all the religious boxes, but simply abiding and trusting always and forever only in Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.